you have a Bible this morning, please open it to Romans chapter 10. If you don't have one with you, you can find one in the pocket of the pew in front of you. And in that black Bible, you can find Romans chapter 10 on page 889. Americans in general always have a thirst for what is new. Whether it's a new car or new phones or the latest computers or gadgets, we are continually grasping for that which is new. Companies know it. That's why they are prone to put out yearly new items, new updates, new this, new that, even if the updates are unremarkable compared to the last thing that was sold. We realize, I think, as Christians, that such newness is tiring and vapid. You can never be up-to-date on everything. Striving to be up-to-date on everything is an endless parade of products and purchasing that is never ever going to be enough. The church is not void of this kind of thought. We just happen to be worse at it than corporate America. Certainly in Baptist churches and evangelical churches, we are prone to this kind of stuff. We promote new strategies for evangelism, for missions, for praying, for determining your spiritual gifts, for church planting, for church itself. We are typically applauding new ideas and innovations, new styles of preaching, new contemporary approaches to the world. This is not a small reason why, after spending time in churches that look like that, a lot of Christians long for something that's not new and innovative, but old and stable, time-tested. They run to older formulations of the faith as they might think of them, whether Greek Orthodox or Roman Catholicism or even Anglican. They want something that has stood the test of time, something that hasn't changed, that isn't prone to the ups and downs of our culture. One thing that we try to do here at Crossway is to make clear that we are actually tethered to that reality. We might not look like we're Roman Catholic, and we might not look like we're Anglican, and we certainly are different than them in a number of different ways, but we are tied to the same sort of tradition. We are tethered to it. Not to denominations or to churches, but we are tethered to the church throughout all of history. Please understand, it's not that we want to appear old or stale, or that by being the church of old, we we are going to make culture sort of conform around us, but rather because we are truly attached to the one church throughout all of time, we are above those things in a sense. That church has existed through multiple different cultures, through wars, through persecutions, through times of grave human mismanagement, through different political realities at different times, through turmoil, through multiple mistakes, through reform of those mistakes. Through all of this, the church ought not seem old, but rather ageless and timeless, not cornered in one area of the culture, but looming over cultures, both adapting and in constant or both adapting and constant in the various changes of the world. You might read Paul and you might think, Paul doesn't seem so terribly bent on tradition. After all, there's a reason why we call it the New Testament, and we call it the New Covenant. You might hear Paul preaching Jesus and think that what he is doing is is going out to his Jewish people and going out to the Gentiles and telling them something that's radically new. It's not wholly untrue. But as we continue today in Romans, we'll find that Paul is really insistent on one thing. He is not promoting novel ideas. He is not taking something of old and saying, you need to trash that and start again with something new. 
but rather he is speaking of something that is radically old, that has always been there, waiting, biding its time, so that its reveal makes it both new and the rightful culmination of that which is so terribly old. Paul's going to argue that in Jesus Christ, the old is indeed made new. Would you read with me in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 13? And there Paul writes this, Brother, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that it's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that, the, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is God's true and errant and invaluable word. First, I would tell you this morning to stand in the righteousness of God. Stand in the righteousness of God. Paul begins chapter 10 in much the same way he began chapter 9, reaffirming that the Israelites had indeed a zeal but also that he had a zeal for them. He wanted the Jews to be saved, to come to a knowledge of salvation in Jesus Christ. It's worth remembering that as he is praying for them, as he is witnessing to his desire for them to be saved, these are the very people that at various times and in different ways made Paul's life difficult, if not hellish. They obstructed the preaching of the gospel. They rejected him at times violently, he records that these same people would have given him the 40 minus 1 lashes five different times. They put him on the run when his work was just getting started and led cities to revolt at his very presence. So what Paul says in the beginning of chapter 9 and certainly in the beginning of chapter 10 is remarkable. It's something of a masterwork when it comes to loving your enemy. It's true, he considered them brothers according to the flesh, as he says in the beginning of chapter 9, but it is also true that those brothers according to the flesh treated him like they used to treat Joseph. They sought his end. They sought to destroy him. They were his enemies in the gospel. But Paul not only cared for them, he prayed for them. We must be able to do the same. Whether people oppose us, religiously, politically, ideologically, we ought to never forget that they are made in the image of God. Therefore, we ought to pray that the gospel will get to them as well. After all, it is the election of God that brings men and women to the faith. We are simply content sometimes by calling those people demons and saying that the things that they espouse are demonic. Maybe that is true. 
but we cannot stop there. We need to actually pray that God would change them. But Paul simply mentions this to get on to the more important thing. He wants to be clear as to what exactly the problem for the Jews was. It is not that the Jews were lazy. It's not that they were careless. It wasn't some sort of rank idolatry that you would find in the Old Testament when it came to the foreign kings as they were turning to Baal and Molech. They weren't doing that. They found a sincere and, and deep zeal for the things of God. It wasn't crass immorality, that they were just indulging themselves in the lusts and, and things of the world. It's clear that they weren't doing that in the New Testament times. Rather, he says that they clearly had a zeal for God. How many people can say that? How many people would stand up before others and have confessed of them that that, that is a person who has a zeal for God? Oh, how that person loves God, how that person seeks after God, how that person serves God. Friends, having a zeal for God is fantastic, but it is not sufficient. These Jews had a zeal for God. Many people who have a zeal for God, a zeal for the truth, will find that salvation has not reached them, just as it hasn't reached these Jews, because while they had a zeal for God, passion is not enough to grant you salvation. They had a zeal without knowledge. They want God they didn't seek to know him rightly. It's a call for us to study Scripture, to understand Scripture, to understand who this God is, who has given himself to us. The Jews failed this in a particular way. They didn't know the righteousness of God. He says they were ignorant of that righteousness. This isn't sort of an accidental ignorance. I find that this has happened in my life, and I then do the same to my kids. My kids will do something, and I'll look at them, and I'll be like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? And they'll say, oh, I... Is this, is this wrong, right? And truth be told, they, when I stop and think about it, there's no reason for them to have known that it was wrong. It's an ignorance, not, not in like a, a negative way. It's just they didn't know that this was not something that should have been done. I remember that happening to me as, as a kid, and I hated it, and I find that I do it all the time as a parent. I don't hate it less now. It's still annoying. The Jews didn't have that sort of accidental ignorance. They had this sort of purposeful ignorance they refused to see the truth that was right in front of them. They kept themselves in the dark and in sin. They rejected the righteousness of God and sought instead to establish their own. Paul uses very clear language here. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Back at the beginning of our study, we looked at Romans 1, 16 and 17, and we talked about the righteousness of God there, and I, I said at that time that the righteousness of God is an attribute of God, of the unique God, where he shows himself to be a kind judge. And that is precisely what the Jews have rejected. They knew they were sinful. They didn't think that they, they lacked sin. No Jew actually thought that. They didn't think that they were, they were wholly perfect before God. They might have thought that they were good enough before God, but they didn't think that they were perfect. They... They didn't view God as a kind judge. They refused to come to him and say, just have mercy on me. Be kind to me in your, in your justice, in, in your righteousness. Be, be kind and merciful to me, a sinner. They rejected that picture of God. They didn't want to see God as simply a kind judge. So they entrusted themselves to their own work. 
they might be righteous before him on their own because they did not entrust themselves to his mercy and grace and refusing his kindness, they thought that they could handle all of this on their own. When I was thinking through this this week, I was reminded of the parable of the talents. In Matthew 25, Jesus gives this terrifying parable of, of giving out talents, a king giving out talents, a, a great man giving out talents to a, a, a group of men, three men, before he goes on. He gives a, a lot to some, a little bit more to, or a little bit less to another, and one talent to another man. Talent's a great sum of money. He goes away and he comes back and he says, what have you done with it? And the first one said, you gave me 10 and I made 10 more. Then the next one says, you gave me five and I made five more. And he, he applauds both of them. And he comes to the last one and he says, and you, what have you done with the talent that I gave you? The man replies this way in verses 24 and 25. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. The end of that parable, that man, that master looks at him and says, if you think that I'm a terrible man now, just wait. If you view God as so holy and righteous, so unkind and unrelenting in his justice, full of wrath, that you are so terrified of him, that you are going to do everything you can to make your life right before him, all you will find is that God is indeed a terrible and wrathful God against those who thwart his own righteousness and refuse to submit themselves to it. He will be that terrible God to you. Trust, friends, trust the consistent and reliable picture of God that he himself has painted in Scripture, that he is kind, that he is merciful, that he is faithful. He is gracious and loving to all who call upon him. If you reject him as rigid and unrelenting in punishment, and you say to yourself, I don't, I don't trust that he will actually be kind to me. I know, I know that I've got to be as good as I can be so that I don't have to rely on anything but my own works. I will never rely upon the mercy and the grace of God because, frankly, I just don't trust him with it. Come hell or high water, that's all I can do. I guarantee you, like the Egyptians before you, both hell and high water will come for you, and you will not stand. There will be no grace. God is just and gracious, and his righteousness shows that he is a kind and merciful judge. So trust that righteousness and grace. Submit yourself to the righteousness of God. Stand in the righteousness of God. Secondly, I would implore you to see faith as the center of the law. See faith as the center of the law. Paul goes on to explain the reason the Jews, while still ignorant, can be held accountable for that ignorance. Because Christ, he says, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We think of Christ being the end of the law. We can think that what Paul means by that is Paul or Jesus just showed up one day and said, okay, the law, we're done with that now. We're going on to something new. This is completely kind of dissociated from one another. It just has a terminus, right? It just ends. When he shows up, he says, okay, we're done following the law. We can put that to the side. Now we're going to do this other new thing. We can think of it that way, and it's not, it's not a wholly wrong way to think of it because the law does come to an end, but Paul probably doesn't mean that it just stops, but rather that it, it's completed. It, its goal 
is Jesus Christ. You can actually read it that way. For Christ is the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He is the end, yes, but he is the purpose, the the import of the law, the goal of the law. The law, always rightly understood, points at Jesus. To have Jesus, you have the entirety of the law. If you find your righteousness in Jesus, you have found the fullness of the righteousness of the law. I'm going to steal an analogy from John Chrysostom. We can see something of the import here by using a saying of Jesus and apply it in a slightly different way. Jesus once said, when the Pharisees saw him hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes, said, why are you doing this? And he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. The purpose and the goal of having a doctor is that one might be made well. That if you're sick, you go to the doctor, that they will prescribe you medicine or they will, they will fix you up, they will perform surgery, they'll do something to make you well. But if you are well, you don't need a doctor. More than that, if you aren't well and you know how to get well all on your own, you don't need a doctor. You can skip over the doctoring part and just get to the end purpose. There's no actual reason to go to the doctor. This is why when you have a small cold, you don't go to the doctor. Why you, when you sprain your ankle, right? You don't go to the doctor. You take a couple of aspirin, you put some ice on the thing, and you elevate it. Everybody knows that. That's why WebMD was created, so that you can find answers. I know they're going to tell you you probably have cancer in your ankle, right? But it's usually just a sprained ankle, so you'll be all right. And this is, you don't need a doctor for that, right? You just, you know the solution, so you don't need the doctor. Get to the goal. Chrysostom says it this way. The end of the physician's art is health. And then he can... As then he can make whole, even though he hath not the physician's art, hath everything. But he that knows not how to heal, though he seem to be a follower of the art, comes short of everything. In other words, the art of making people well is only as good as people being made well. If you can make it well without knowing any of the physician's tricks, you don't need the physician. In Christ, we now have no need of the law. We've been given the goal of the law, the end of the law. We've been given the purpose of the law in Jesus Christ. We don't need the law anymore. The early church recognized this. In Acts 15, Peter speaks to the entire church, knowing that if the Jews who have believed are only righteous before God because they believed in Jesus Christ, then why put the law on the Gentiles? He says this. Now, therefore, why? He's talking to people who seek to want to implement the law for the Gentiles as well. He says to them, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Jesus is the goal of the law. The law was put in place to bring us to Jesus. Paul furthers this. He does what I did last week. I'm sure when I get to heaven, he will thank me. Note how the first commandment begins. I said last week, the first commandment before you get to any of the commandments begins, I am the Lord your God who called you out of Egypt, who rescued you from the house of slavery, right? So there's this idea that God has established the relationship with his people long before he ever called them to any sort of covenant, showing that even the covenant that he set up for them was always to be a covenant of faith. God had established their place before him. They don't get to establish that. 
Paul is going to tell us how faith is front and center in the law here, but he uses two different passages that, quite honestly, if you were to read them in context on their own, you might come to a different conclusion that Paul did. And probably, if you read them before you read the book of Romans, you would come to a different conclusion than Paul did. They're difficult verses. The first one is the idea that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. That is a use of Leviticus 18.5. Leviticus 18.5 comes after the pinnacle of Leviticus and the Day of Atonement, and it's summarizing. Leviticus 1 through 5 is sort of summarizing the entirety of the law. What is the purpose of the law? Let me read those first five verses for you before we get to what Paul is actually quoting and see how much similar that sounds to what I said last week. Leviticus 18.1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall do, you shall not do, excuse me, as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. It seems like that's the kind of thing that Paul would quote positively, right? Because it, it has faith all the way around it. He's saying you can't do as they do, you can't do as the Canaan's, Canaanites do, you can't do as the Egyptians do. You're only to do what I have called you to do because I brought you out and I am bringing you in. I am front and center of everything that's being given to you. You don't need to keep it to establish a relationship with me. I'm doing this for you. But it's impossible to think that Paul is using it in the same way that I use the first commandment. It's almost certainly negative here. He's quoting it as a way to say this is what people who want to establish their righteousness by works have to do. They have to keep the law. After all, Paul is doing nothing but contrasting doing and believing. This is how Paul uses this verse elsewhere. It's not the first time or the only time that Paul uses this particular verse. A couple of ways I would explain this. First, remember that those who are under the law up until the time of Christ... It would be hard to tell the difference between those who follow the law according to faith and those who follow the law according to works. It doesn't do to say, as James might tell us, I have faith, but I don't do the law. If you don't do the law, you don't believe in the God who gave you the law. And so it's not for Paul easy enough to stand up and say, well, they, they, they believe they didn't have to follow the law. No, they, they needed to do the things in the law as well. So it does well for us to remember that these people would have gone at the law in the same way. Its goal has been reached, though, and it has come to an end in Christ. Remember that anyone who followed the law, they knew that they were sinful. So what was going to happen when they sinned? What was going to happen yearly? The priest was going to have to go into the high, uh, Holy of Holies, and he was going to have to make atonement. They, they had a sacrificial system set up. That was exactly what the earlier chapters of Leviticus were talking about. There's a sacrificial system set up. But if Jesus is the goal of the law, friends, there is no more sacrifice. The sacrifices of the Old Testament were only as good as the, what they were symbolizing. They weren't there on their own. They were there to point to the one who would be our true and every sacrifice. That there would be no more sacrifices given. 
They were symbols of the reality that is to come. Friends, if you reject the reality, you can't run back to the symbols and think that you're going to get forgiveness. Therefore, those who find themselves seeking to establish their own righteousness do not have the law's sacrifices as a way to find forgiveness before God. And secondly, it's important to realize that Paul doesn't quote the whole thing. Now, oftentimes in Scripture, when Paul quotes just a bit, or any New Testament author quotes just a bit of the Old Testament, you ought to read it in context, but I think here it's purposeful. He doesn't quote the portion that I made much of, which is that the Lord your God has sort of established this relationship. In fact, it is only by neglecting that statement made in Leviticus 18, the first three verses, where God reminds them that he is their God, that he has delivered them, that he will give them the promised land. It is only by neglecting that that you should ever come to the conclusion that you should establish your own righteousness. What I think Paul is doing is, is by isolating Leviticus 18.5, he's saying this, those who want to establish their own works as the way in which they are going to be justified before God have to ignore everything that came before. It doesn't count. All your love, you're, you're ignoring the fact that God has established his own righteousness with you. God has established his own relationship with you. God is the one who has called you into covenant with him. God is the one who has brought you out of slavery. God is the one who will give it to you. God is the one who is making all of the promises come true. You've got to ignore all of that. And what are you left with when you ignore all of it? If you do them, you will live. But now, there's no sacrifices to fall back on. Now you've got to be perfect. Now you've got to be absolutely perfect in all of your ways. This is why Paul quotes the passage that way. If you want to neglect everything else, you go ahead and do that. But you've got to be perfect. The only thing that you have left is your work. But that is not what the law was there for. Paul then starts to quote Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14. Although he changes a lot in that quote, he is indeed quoting this. The context is important. Moses stands on the precipice of the promised land. He's giving final instructions before the people go into that promised land, telling them and expositing for them with the meaning of the Ten Commandments. By the time he comes to the end of that sermon, which is what Deuteronomy is, is one long sermon for the most part, he looks at them and he tells them something of the future. He says, listen, here's what's going to happen, guys. If you obey, goodness and blessing will be yours in the land. If you deny what I'm telling you today, cursing and rejection from the land will be the end of it. He goes from being a preacher to being a prophet real quick, though, because he doesn't just leave it there. He makes it clear that the end of all of this will be your rejection from the land. You will actually be cursed by God. God will drive you out of the land. But nevertheless, in chapter 30, verse 6, he says this, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. After, after God removes you from the land, he will visit you again. And he will make you love him. He will make you desire him so that you might not be thrust out of the land ever again, so that you might live before him. And it's only after that verse that Paul or that Moses says these words. This commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it too far off. 
It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. What is all of that about? What is Moses even saying to them? Well, first, let us be clear. What he is saying is the commandments that I've given to you are not too hard for you. He's not like playing tricks on them. It doesn't mean that they will keep it. There's obviously, Moses knows that they're not going to keep it. We know they're not going to keep it. But what Moses is saying is you're not being able to keep it is not a fundamental flaw in the law. Like there is nothing in you that intrinsically keeps you from being able to honor the authorities above you like your mother and father. There is nothing intrinsically in you that means that you can't not steal, right? You know how to speak the truth and bear false witness. You can do these things is what he's saying. It's capable. You, you have the ability to keep the law. But the most important part of this is that they, they don't need to strive to find out how to please God. They don't need to sit in the land and say, well, I, I wonder how we can make God happy with us. I wonder how we can, we can make God smile upon us. I wonder how we can make ourselves right with God. What he's saying is you don't, you don't need to trounce up to heaven and say, God, please tell us what to do, or, or dig down to the pits of Sheol and say, now, now that we've shown ourselves to you, now let us be happy before you. No, he says very clearly, this is the word that was, not just the commandments anymore, but the entire word is this. God has given it to you. He's given you the law. He's giving you the land. He has given you redemption. God is giving it to you. And notice the kind of giving that it is. It is in your mouth and in your heart. It is not in your hands. I've not given it to you so that you can do it. I've given it to you so that you can believe it. It was always by faith. The law was never to be the proof of the righteousness of the Jews. It was never to be the proof of the righteousness of Israel. It was always a display of their faith in God. And as such, Paul says that its very end is nothing less than Christ. The purpose of the law has found its end in Jesus. What do you need? What do you need in life? Not what do you want, not the new iPhone or a new car. What do you need in life? You need to know the will of God. You need to be right before him. Ultimately, these are the things that you have to have. You don't have to have air. You're going to die. You don't have to have water. You're going to die. But there is one who has the power to raise you from the dead. What do you need? You need to be right before him. Do you need to scale into heaven or dig to the depths to be right before him? No. God didn't need you to implore him to send his son. He sent his son from heaven to grant you salvation. God didn't need your prayers to raise him from the dead. He was happy of his own initiative to raise Jesus Christ from the dead and to give him life. God, now as much as then, has given us all that we need. For the law, which was to be display of the faith of Israel, has now been fully embodied in the person of Christ who has brought the law to its rightful and true end. He is our righteousness. The very center of the promises of God come true for us. Put it this way. If, God forbid, my wife was taken from me, 
And you didn't get much of a chance to know her in this world. Maybe you'd sit down with me and, and I'd start to talk about her and you'd ask me some more questions and I, I, could, I could talk about her for a while. And maybe not in that moment, but over the course of years, maybe decades, as I spoke about her more, what she looked like, her likes and her dislikes, how she acted, how she responded to various things, her manners, her ways, the way in which she loved her children, the way she talked to them, the kind of books that she liked to read, Amish zombie novels. She doesn't, she's smiling at least. Her sense of humor, she loves animal jokes. She doesn't like any of my other jokes because she didn't laugh at that last one. How she sat on the couch. Like I could talk to you about those things. And you would, you would come to a conclusion after years with me that you, you kind of know her. You don't really know her, know her, but you, you kind of know her. You know her without knowing her. You have, a, you have an understanding of who she was, the things that she liked, the things that she wanted, these kinds of things. Thanks be to God. You don't need to do that. She's sitting here in the flesh. Get to know her. She's wonderful. I think so. You see, the law is an outline. The law gives us the very character of God. God says, be holy as I am holy. And the law is an embodiment. The law is a structure, an outline of the very character and the nature of God. As we fulfill the law, we look more like our God wants us to look. But you don't need the outline when Christ has come. The outline was always there. That's what the law was meant to be, an outline to show us how Christ actually is that character. We don't need the vague shadow. We don't need the outline, but we have Christ our Lord. And just like the faith that we were to have in the character of God displayed in the law, we know that Jesus is not far from us. We don't have to go get him. We don't have to work for him. We don't have to help him to make his promises come true. God has done everything for us, and he has done it through his son, Jesus Christ. Friends, faith is the center of the law. And if you see that, then thirdly, you should say that Jesus is indeed the Lord. Say that Jesus is indeed the Lord. Again, we come back to Jesus. If we simply believe with our heart and confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, which is no different than professing his resurrection, right? This is why Paul mentions the resurrection after that. Scripture says, everyone who believes in him shall not be put to shame, and part of that is believing in his resurrection, is confessing his resurrection. For the Lord to be proclaimed as Jesus is nothing less than to proclaim his resurrection. This is what Paul says in Romans 1.4. Jesus was appointed to be the powerful Son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Jesus is the Lord because he is resurrected. Yet the confession, simply mouthing the words, Jesus is Lord, needs to be rightly understood for what it means. Right? It doesn't do to simply say, well, all you need to do is raise your hand and say, Jesus is Lord, and the Lord God will confer upon you all the rights and privileges of salvation. It doesn't work like that. Just like the Israelites in the Old Testament might raise their hand and say, well, Yahweh is God. But if all they meant by that is Yahweh is one of the gods, or Yahweh is a God among gods, or Yahweh is our God, but the Canaanites have different gods. They're kind of equal in strength, and they fight one another every once in a while. No, it won't do. God won't have that. 
To know what we mean by Jesus is Lord is important. You are confessing not just words, but you are confessing in truth. Paul insists that it must come from the heart, not simply the mouth. It must be more than just forming words. You've got to understand and believe what you're saying. So Paul tells us we must believe it in our heart, for actually out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth will speak. Jesus, the man, died for our sins and was resurrected. When we say Jesus is Lord, we are implying that he has been resurrected from the dead. His resurrection implies that he was indeed dead. And we know that he died for our sins. We know that he died in our place, that he took our condemnation, won victory over it, and therefore was resurrected from the grave by the glory of God our Lord. And what's more, that Jesus is now Lord. I will admit, I have a lot more sympathy for people who come to the New Testament and who read through the New Testament and who come away and say, I don't buy it, than I do for the numerous different heretical sects who come to the New Testament, read it, study it, and leave and say, well, Jesus is Lord, but I don't think the New Testament ever really calls him God. I I just, I don't see it. If you were to go to Cracker Barrel, some other restaurant, they give you those paper sheets with crayons for your kids so that your kids don't freak out completely before the meal comes, right? And they've got little random dots put on there, and those dots are numbered, and you start connecting them one to two, and two to three, and three to four, and by the time you're done, you look down and you say, hey, that's a duck. It was just a bunch of random dots, but now I see that's a duck. These are the kind of people who would come along and say, no, 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 I've seen a duck. That doesn't have feathers. That's not a duck. Like, do you connect the dots or not, man? It's not hard. What is Paul saying? When you confess that Jesus is Lord, he turns around and immediately quotes the Old Testament. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who is that Lord? He's not just some sort of like, British nobility like Lord Kelvin or Lord Byron or Lord Reginald Smitherington III, right? Whatever name you want to put to it. He's not a lord like that, just more exalted than that, just some sort of of guy who rules over parts of the earth or the entirety of the earth. That's not how Jesus is lord. Paul is quoting the Old Testament. He's not just saying this is the path that the New Testament takes. He's saying this is what the Old Testament says. Joel 2.28 is partly where he's getting it from, and this is the quote. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, if you were to look that up in your Old Testament, you would find that L and O and R and D are all in capitals, because that is the actual covenant name of God. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, for there will be no escape from those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, as the Lord promised. Excuse me. There will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, as the Lord promised. Among the survivors, the Lord calls. That Lord is none less than the covenant Lord of the Old Testament. That Lord is none less than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is no less than the God of creation who has made all things visible and invisible. All powers and authorities have come from his good hand. Nothing that has been made has been made except by him. And if it was made, it was made by him. And Paul says, that is Jesus. 
I don't know what you want to do with those dots. But Lord there simply means God. And there's no other way to get around that. When you were confessing that Jesus is Lord, you were saying that he is the Old Testament God come in flesh. Regardless if you want to pronounce his name Yahweh, regardless if you want to pronounce his name Jehovah, regardless if you want to simplify, simplify it all and just pronounce his name Jesus, that is calling on the name of the Lord. So you were confessing that Jesus, the man who was your sacrifice and your salvation, that that Jesus is no less than God. That is not a bad confession. It means that you were saved by the work of God alone. By the Father sending the Son who bore our sin by the strength of the Spirit of God. It means that you do nothing but rely upon God. This is what it means to know the salvation of the Lord. We confess that he is indeed the Lord. He is sovereignly in control of all things. That this Lord has mercy on whom he has mercy. Jesus, the Son of God, was the very God who had mercy on his people in Exodus, but refused to have mercy on Pharaoh. That same God has come to us and called us. We are the survivors the Lord has called. We confess that he is Lord, resurrected from the dead, dying our death to forgive our sins and to make us right before God, resurrected by the very power of God to vindicate the name of Jesus Christ. And what's more, we confess that this salvation is his doing and his doing alone. We say that it comes from him. It is through him and the glory goes back to him. And this confession has absolutely nothing to do with anything that we have done. There is no work here for you. There is no work. There is a simple trust and a public display of that trust, a public confession of that trust. That is it. This salvation is not merited by you. It is won by God. It is not owed to you in any way, shape, or form. It is a holy, loving, and gracious act done by a holy and just God. See the great grace of God in this. Your debt was before this God. You owed a death to this God. But instead, this God paid it for you. He asked nothing of you. He did not take your pledges. He didn't take your promises. He didn't wait for you to say, listen, I, oh, sincerely, man, I will change. I remember sitting in... Uh, my grandpa's trailer. Like, it wasn't for salvation. It was for something stupid, a girl, right? And I'm like, I'll, I'll give up swearing. Swear, I'll do it. I didn't do it. Like, it lasted like a day, right? Give, I make, make deals with God all the time. You didn't make any deals. You did, you did nothing. God just gives it to you. And this, all of this, freeness from hell, freeness from the sins and the penalty of them, freed from the, the enslavement that you have to them, free to enjoy the goodness and the beauty of God forever and ever. All of this comes only through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is for us and all who call upon his name. 
a wonderful and a merciful Savior. Let us pray. Father, may you be praised by the work of your Son, whom we know and love through the help of the Spirit. May our confession of Jesus as Lord be true, both in what we intend when we speak and how it is reflected in our hearts. Be merciful, Savior, giving us light and truth and faith. And in doing so, may we lay down all of our works, all of our striving, and plead for salvation only on the basis of your good and kind mercy, standing on your righteousness alone. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. Amen.